The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Before we consider God's word together, let's pray and ask that his spirit would give us ears to hear. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have entered into, we've drawn near to heavenly places this morning. And here over this house, we have a great priest, the Lord Jesus. And we ask, Lord Jesus, as our great priest, as our good and great shepherd, that by your spirit, we would have ears to hear your voice this morning as you lead us. And as you lead us, would you lay us down in green pastures? Would you lead us beside still waters? Would you restore our souls? Would you set us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake? Would you comfort us by your rod and your staff? For we ask it in your precious and powerful name, the name of Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So we heard last week that we are starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of John. And that new series will begin next week. But this week, we wanted to take a Sunday just to consider where we are as the people of God at this moment and this time in history, in this place in history. And I want us to consider two things this morning. Why it is that we gather together in person on the Lord's Day. And I also want us to consider how is it that we are going to press on in faith, hope, and love in the months and the years that lay ahead of us. And especially as we look ahead and see that the road ahead of us is going to be narrow and it's going to be difficult. So I want to consider those two things. And as we look ahead and we consider how it is we're going to press on, 
we need to recognize that we will be tempted to shrink back. We'll be tempted to retreat. And this word of scripture that we've just heard from Hebrews chapter 10 was written to a people who were in a similar circumstance as we find ourselves. They were tempted to shrink back. And this is a word of exhortation to them to keep going. And if you just look on in the chapter, if you still have your Bible open in front of you to Hebrews chapter 10, if you just look down a few verses and come to verse 32, I want us to hear that. This is, this is their situation. It's similar to our situation. So starting in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. If you look ahead and you see, you know what, we're going through another difficult time. He's saying to them, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, that was the word to those Christians, those believers in the first century. We have need of endurance. Don't shrink back. It's the word to us today in the 21st century. As believers here in Toronto and Canada, we have need of endurance. Don't shrink back. I was listening to the news on CBC this week on the radio, The World at Six, on Wednesday evening. And it was the usual stuff. You know, the, the news tends to be quite repetitive these days. But then there was about a three or four minute story that really caught my attention. It was a report about a, an evangelical Christian ministry that works among First Nations in northern Ontario. And I looked up the ministry, and this is what they say is their mission statement. So the mission statement of this ministry is, I'm quoting, to partner with Aboriginal Christians to evangelize the lost, disciple believers, and develop people for Christian service. And the way in which this ministry operates among First Nations is by offering day camps, retreats, uh, teaching programs. Well, the CBC did an investigation into this Christian ministry. And they found that in some of the counseling and teaching that they provide, if they, they looked at their teaching materials and their resources, and they discovered there that this ministry calls homosexuality a sin. You know, looking through the literature, they found that. And then they phoned the, uh, the president of the ministry, and, and he said, yes, we believe that homosexuality is a sin. Now, in the CBC report, the reporter went on to say, this could be viewed as a form of conversion therapy. 
And the, re- the report said, and conversion therapy is illegal in Ontario, and the federal government is trying to make it a criminal offense in Canada. Now, what the reporter was referring to is Bill C-8. It was before the House, before uh, Parliament was dissolved, so it's the, the bill died there, but it's going to come back. And the purpose of the bill is to make conversion therapy a criminal act, to add that to the criminal code. And if you go, and you can, you can look up the bill, it's Bill C-8, you can look it up on the Canada website, Government of Canada website, you can see what it says. And in the introduction to the bill, there's a preamble. This is what the preamble says. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to persons, and in particular, the children, and there's a, there's a real focus here on children, those under 18, who are subjected to it. And whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation and gender identity, including the myth that a person's sexual orientation and gender identity can and ought to be changed. In other words, what it's saying is, if your son who's 11 or 12 years old is saying that he's a girl, it is a myth to think that he can or ought to continue to think, or think that he's a boy. His gender identity is, I'm a girl. It is a myth to think that that can change or that it ought to change. This is the assumption behind the proposed legislation. Now, two things about this. The, the view of the government that this is a myth. First of all, it clearly contradicts the gospel. It clearly contradicts the word of God. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now notice what's at stake here. Inheriting the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Yes, so were some of you, but you changed. How? The justifying work of our Lord and Savior. The grace, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So the myth that's being addressed here is actually the gospel itself. It's not a myth. But it's not just that. It's not just that the bill contradicts the gospel and the word of God. It actually contradicts reality. And I mean empirically verified reality. Because there are many studies that have been done especially on gender identity, empirically, peer, empirical, peer-reviewed studies on gender identity in children and adolescents. And researchers find again and again that children and adolescents, if they are confused about their gender identity, so a little boy who's 10 or 11 who thinks he's a girl, 
they've done follow-up studies. And in the vast majority of cases, usually it's around 88%, as, as the boy grows up, he comes to accept and be comfortable with his birth gender. So yes, he was, he was confused for a time, but as he grew up, he became comfortable with his birth gender. Now this is empirically peer-reviewed research in, in journals. So the myth that the government, uh, or the government of Canada is addressing here is actually not only contradicting the, the word of God, what they say about that, but also what researchers know, empirical reality. Now regardless of that, the bill says it's a myth that someone who chooses their identity should, uh, can change that or should. That should be the view that we all have. And therefore, any attempts to change, to give counseling to a person, especially a young person, should be illegal. And this is what, they, this is what they're proposing. The criminal code should say this. This is what they want to say. Everyone who knowingly causes a person who is under the age of 18 years to, go, to undergo conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Now, here's, here's what the proposed legislation is saying. If you, as a parent, have a son who's 10 or 11 years old, and he says, I think, I'm, I think I'm a girl. It will be a criminal offense for you to take him to counseling where the counselor would help him to come to terms with his, his, his birth gender. Help him to, to come to terms with being a boy. That's what that's saying. And the key is how they define conversion therapy. Because there are forms of conversion therapy which are, are quite frankly wicked. But the criminal code already accounts for that. So this is how they define conversion therapy. Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service. So any kind of counseling. Designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or a gender identity to cisgender. That means the gender with which you were born. Or to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. So what they mean by conversion therapy is any kind of counseling. That's going to be a criminal offense. That's what, they are, that's what they are working towards. Now, this clearly contradicts the gospel. It clearly contradicts the word of God, and it contradicts what empirical studies show. The reason I mention this is because as we look ahead, we are going to see increasingly this kind of legislation coming into law which not only contradicts God's word, but actually contradicts lived experience, contradicts reality. And we need to be clear about Bill C-8. This is designed to enforce a particular ideology. It actually does not have the interests of children in mind here at all. Because if it did, it would, it would go in the exact opposite direction. It would make a criminal offense trying to put a 10 or 11-year-old into hormone therapy or gender transition. That, that, would be, that would be the just law. And in fact, the UK has just done that. Has gone the exact opposite direction. 
So th- this law, this legislation, is not at all concerned about the welfare of children. This is a wicked, evil law. This is an unjust, hateful law. There's no justice. There's no love in this law. But this is what's coming. Now, the CBC story raised this. Hey, maybe this group, what they're doing is a form of conversion therapy. And because of this CBC investigation, the grand chief of the Nishnabi Aski nation has told this group they have to leave. They can't run programs for indigenous youth anymore. Now, indigenous youth and First Nations, they, they need these programs. So this is, as we look ahead, this is, this is a sign. You know, what's happened with this ministry, what's, what's happening with Bill C8, this is a sign that the road ahead for us as God's people for the church is increasingly becoming narrow and it's going to be difficult. We're going to face such challenges. So yes, like we read in Hebrews 10, we have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. We will be tempted to shrink back. And that's why I want us to consider verses 19 to 25 in Hebrews 10, and especially verses 22 to to 25. Because there we're given three exhortations, and these are three exhortations which show us how we will endure. How is it that we're going to press on? So in verse 22, let us draw near to the holy places with a true heart and full assurance of faith. That's the first thing. Let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's the second exhortation. If we're going to press on, we need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not forsaking to meet together. So these three exhortations, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So first, if we're not going to shrink back, if we're going to endure, let us draw near. Now, if you're looking at verse 22, you might ask the question, draw near to where? Where is it that we're drawing near? Well, it's clear as you're reading through the letter to the Hebrews, and we we would have just seen it in verse 19, we are drawing near to the heavenly places, to the holy places. In the book of Hebrews, the holy places are the very presence of God. Draw near to the presence of God, the presence of the triune God, to the throne of grace, to where Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're drawing near to there. Later in Hebrews 12, we're given this description of the place to where we draw. Listen to Hebrews 12, 22 to 20, 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let us draw near there. And that's not just a future reality. That is a present reality. We have confidence to enter 
that holy place now. So let us draw near. And notice what it says. With a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean with an, from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the reference here to heart and body. Now that's a Jewish way of saying the whole person. The whole person. Draw near with your whole being. Draw near with your whole person. And your whole person being cleansed. Your whole person being washed, full of the assurance of faith. Now, how is it that we're cleansed? The letter to the Hebrews answers that question. We are cleansed by the sprinkled blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from an evil conscience. Because in him we have forgiveness of sins. His shed blood has atoned for our sin. His shed blood has removed the penalty for our sin, which is death. His shed blood has satisfied the wrath of God so that we are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. Now, every Sunday morning, we come to this table. And here in this bread, in this, this cup, we are reminded of this reality, that we have been cleansed. We have this bread, it's torn. This bread is his body, which is broken, torn. We've gone through the veil of his flesh for you. And this cup is the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the reality of the cleansing blood of Christ and therefore our access to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is on display, and it is confirmed to us every time we come to this table. That gives us the full assurance of faith. We come to this table Sunday by Sunday, and we're given the full assurance of faith. But here we also read the washing, washing with pure water. Your body's washed with pure water. Well, remember what the Apostle Paul says, that... Our Lord washes us with the pure water of his word. The washing of the word. That's Ephesians 5 verse 26. And so it is every Sunday we come here and we are washed by the word of God. We hear the word of God. And we're washed. And that gives us the full assurance of faith. If we're going to press on, if we're going to walk the narrow road if we're not going to shrink shrink back, then we need the full assurance of faith, which is why we come to this table. This is why we, we sit under the preaching of the word of God. And it's significant, therefore, as we gather in this place, that we have the pulpit and the table, the washing of the word, the affirmation, the confirmation of the cleansing of the saving work of Christ. And kids, you can think about it this way. I mean, kids, you're looking up here. As you're looking up, what do you see? You see the cross there. The empty cross, because he's, the Lord Jesus was raised on the third day. He's the resurrection, the life. He's conquered death. And every Sunday we see that we are reminded of the saving work of Christ. And that is declared and confirmed in the preaching of the word with this pulpit. And then we come up to this table. So the reason we draw near in full assurance of faith 
And the reason that we come here Sunday by Sunday and hear the word of God and come to the table is because we need that full assurance of faith. Now, one thing that we're going to start doing, and it's starting next week, is having an evening service. And the reason we want to introduce an evening service is because we recognize that going forward, as the road becomes narrow and difficult, we need to draw near together. And notice it says, let us draw near. Let us. Together we draw near. So we want to come twice on a Sunday. We want to draw near twice on a Sunday. Because we need that full assurance of faith if we're going to continue. Secondly, the writer says, let us hold fast. If we're not going to shrink back, if we will endure. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Yes, the road ahead of us will be narrow. It will be difficult. Now, how is it that we're going to hold fast the confession of hope without wavering? It's not going to be our own strength. It's not going to be because, yeah, I'm really holding fast. The second part of that verse is the key. For he who promised is faithful. We will hold fast because he is faithful. We have a great priest over this house. We are that house. We have a great shepherd. Later in Hebrews, he promises us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is the Lord Jesus who is leading us down this road. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He who promised is faithful. We will hold fast to the confession of hope, of our hope without wavering, because he's holding fast to us. And when we gather together on Sundays, we are assured of that. We're reminded of that. But the author says, the writer says, let us hold fast. Again, it's not just me and my individual faith. How strong is my faith? I'm holding fast. No, we together, let us hold fast together. This summer, we went camping up uh, on the Pinery, which is on the, I guess, the east coast or the west coast of Lake Huron. And sometimes there's great big waves, and there happened to be great big waves when we went. It was a lot of fun. I think it's the biggest waves I've ever been in. It was 90% fun and 10% terrifying, because I was a little worried I was going to get pulled under and (laughs) not come up again. But playing out on the waves is a lot of fun. But there are times when you're out there, and just given the undercurrents and everything that's going on, you you sometimes have a hard time getting back to the shore. And kids, I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures or seen a video of a human chain. You know, someone is out swimming, and the surf is rough, and they can't get back. And what, what the people on shore will do is they'll make a human chain, linking arm in arm, and they'll slowly go out, arm in arm, and rescue that swimmer. And bring them back. Well, this is a picture of what it means for us to hold fast the confession of our faith. We do it together. Arm in arm, we're holding fast. Not just as individuals, okay, how's my faith today? Is it strong? No, together, arm in arm, we're holding fast our confession. Now, this is something that has to happen in person. It can't happen virtually. There isn't a virtual human chain that can go out and save a person. 
who can't get back to shore. Has to happen in person. And we see this in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul himself, he was concerned about various other believers. And he wrote them letters. But he knew that the letter itself was insufficient. He needed to be there. So this is what he says to the Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 3.10. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Yes, you've received this letter from me. That's not enough. And so we are praying earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face. And then supply what is lacking in your faith. There's going to be times in the days, in the months, the years ahead where some of us are going to be lacking in faith. We need one another. We need to see one another face to face to supply what is lacking in our faith. Again, Romans, at the beginning of Romans, Paul says this. This is Romans 1, 11 to 12. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Notice this. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, they've just received Paul's letter to the Romans. Isn't that a great spiritual gift? Shouldn't that strengthen them? They've got the letter to the Romans. It wasn't enough. Paul says, I long to see you so that in person I can give you the spiritual strength that you need. So we need to be devoted to the fellowship. We need to be devoted to being together if we're to hold fast to our confession. Now, holding fast to the confession isn't just something for this generation. You know, we're going to hold on to the faith. It also means we are going to pass on to the faith so that the next generation is holding on to the faith. Part of holding fast means looking ahead and making sure the next generation is holding fast. That was also a concern of the Apostle Paul. So he says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. This confession. Guard it. Hold on to it. Yes. But then he goes on to say, just a few verses later, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust, pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, holding fast also means passing it on, that others receive it. It's entrusted to others who can then pass it on. So as we're looking at the difficult road ahead, the narrow road ahead, and we're considering this exhortation to hold fast the confession of our hope, we also need to be thinking about how is the next generation receiving it? How are they going to hold fast? How will it be preserved in the coming generations? And that means we need to be much more intentional in keeping what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy here. What's been entrusted to you, you entrust to faithful men who will be able to instruct others also. And so we need to do that as a church, as a congregation. We need to look for faithful men in the congregation who will be able to, who are holding fast to this confession of hope, who will be able to teach others. And so when we gather together again on a Sunday evening, we're going to see some of these men that we're raising up. They're going to be preaching to you. They're going to be teaching. Now, men in the congregation right now, hear this. 
holding fast the future generation, passing it on. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're such a faithful man to be entrusted with this confession of hope and be charged to pass it on, to instruct others. So holding fast the confession of our hope. And then finally, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice it doesn't say, let the pastors consider how to stir up the rest of the congregation to love and good works. No, it says, let us, let us, let each one of us consider. And that word consider carries the idea of something that requires a thoughtful, intentional engagement You know, it requires time, it requires effort, it requires that you know one another well. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, look around the congregation. You can do that right now. Look around to one another. See one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And as we look around to one another, let's also remember those who aren't with us this morning. And there are various reasons why they're not with us this morning. But let's consider how, how are we stirring them up to love and good works. And later in Hebrews, we have this commandment. And this is a commandment that we need in front of us, and it needs to be ringing in our ears. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We need to hear that commandment. See to it that no one, not one of us, those who aren't coming on Sundays, those who may not be able to come on Sundays, see to it that none of us, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then the author goes on to say, not forsaking to meet together. Again, we're not going to be able to stir one another up to love and good works if we're not together. This doesn't happen over Zoom. It's in person. And what the author says here, do not neglect. That word there, neglect, it's a word that appears many times in the Old Testament and it appears in context where the prophets are indicting Israel for abandoning, forsaking the Lord. This is quite a heavy word. When we think neglect, it's like, ah, I neglected to pick up milk on the way home. That's not, that's not what neglect means here. This means abandoning. This means forsaking. And some of you may be listening online because you can't be here. I mean, consider this. Am I abandoning or am I forsaking the assembly? Now, some of you can't be here for good reason. That doesn't mean you're abandoning or forsaking the assembly. But this is a strong word. The positive side of it is we are devoted, we are committed to assembling together, to being together, to the fellowship. 
Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. And the warning is, if you do, that leads to forsaking the Lord himself. And you just have to read on in Hebrews, starting in verse 26 to 31. There's a warning there about those who have abandoned the Lord himself. And these two things are connected. When we forsake the assembly of God's people, we soon forsake the Lord himself. So if we're going to shrink back, uh, no, we don't want to do that. If we're not going to shrink back, if we're going to endure, if we're going to draw near the holy places, if we're going to hold fast the confession of our faith, of our hope without wavering, if we're going to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, then we have to come together. We have to meet together. There's a story about D.L. Moody. I haven't confirmed this, whether it's just a story or if it actually happened. I'm a little bit unsure about that, so just letting you know I found this on the internet. But it's illustrating a point. There's a story about D.L. Moody that went to visit a man who was saying, I don't need to go to church anymore. I don't need the fellowship of God's people. I've got my Bible. I'm praying. I'm doing okay. And D.L. Moody went to visit the man, and they sat together, and the man made his case for why he didn't need the assembly of God's people. And Moody listened, and then there was silence for a time. And then he went over to the fire, and he pulled, uh, he took a glowing coal out of the fire, and he just set it aside on the hearth. And then the two of them sat there, and they watched it. As, that, as the glow of the ember slowly died out. And it went black. And Moody didn't say anything. And the man just simply said, oh, I see. And that's the case. When we, when we abandon or forsake the assembly of God's people, we soon find that our hope, our faith, our love grows cold. We become black. So as we look at the road ahead and we recognize the challenges that are coming and it's going to be an increasingly narrow road and it's going to be a difficult road, no one of us on our own is going to be able to walk that road. We're not going to make it. But as we draw near together, as we sit under the washing of the word, as we come to the Lord's table, as we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, as we gather together Sunday by Sunday, as we gather together throughout the week, we'll find that we do have true hearts full of the assurance of faith. And we will know the abiding presence and faithfulness of our Lord. I find in my own life, I, I, am, I, I know my Lord's presence and love for me through the presence and the love of my brothers and sisters. So let us draw near. Let us enter the holy places. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And now we come to this Lord's table He is the great priest over this house. He presides over this table. So let's come now with confidence. 
And as we see in verses, verses 19 to 21, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over this house, let us now come to his table. Let us receive his body. Let us receive this cup, which is the cup of the new covenant in his blood, shed for you and shed for me, for the forgiveness of our sins. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.